O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. So I don't know how many of you have ever watched uh, a rowing team on a river. One of the things that strikes me about rowers, whether they're in a rowboat by themselves or with a team, is that they're going in one direction as they row, but they're usually facing the opposite direction. Uh, That's in many ways what we're doing here in Romans. Paul is taking us in the direction of the gospel. He wants to give us the good news. He wants to tell us about the righteousness of God made available for any one of you who believe, who trust that Jesus has died for you. But in order to do that, he forces us, if we're Christians, to look into our past, to look backward, to see the bad news first. Anselm of Canterbury was a early Christian leader almost a thousand years ago now, who is quoted as saying to many people time and time again, you have not yet considered the gravity of sin. You have not yet considered the gravity of sin. That's what these chapters in Romans are intended to convey. They are telling us really an essential truth if we want to understand ourselves. If we want to understand the world we're living in, if we want to understand who God is, and here's the truth, something is wrong. Something's wrong with this world. Something's wrong with you. And it needs to be made right. And here's why that's such an essential truth. Wherever sin is unmasked, wherever sin is unmasked and confessed, God's redemptive power is already present and already acting If you want to be changed, really changed, really changed by the gospel, uh, you have to face the gravity of sin. You have to face the gravity of your sin. And so that's what we continue to study today. Paul's begun this exposition of the bad news. 
the great problem of the world, the problem of sin, of human rebellion against God. And last week, he told us, verse 18 of chapter 1, that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And then Paul spent the second half of that chapter uh, writing about irreligious people, pagan Gentile people who reject God. That's the point of those verses. They reject the clear truth about God and they construct and worship counterfeit gods and God gives them over to what they most want, a a life without Him. And now in chapter 2, the verses that Tim just read for us, Paul's continuing his discussion of the gravity of sin. But here we find out that Paul's been setting you up. Um, He's doing a judo move on you. And it's only now that you figure that out. You know, in judo, so I'm told, no judo master am I. But I've been told that in judo, you'll use your opponent's own momentum against him or against her. And that's exactly what the apostle is doing here. Here's the idea. There are many, many people in the world. There's a lot of people in this room right now, whether they're Christians or not, who would agree with everything Paul said in those verses last week. They would hear my sermon from last week and they would say, that's right, pastor, preach on, denounce those heathens, tell those bad people how bad they are. I remember a couple of years ago, right here in this room, I preached a sermon on um, judgment, not a fun sermon, Sodom and Gomorrah was what I preached on. And afterwards, someone who I knew wasn't a Christian came up to me and he said, that's a great sermon, pastor. Don't ever hesitate to preach God's judgment. And I thought, I'm not sure this had the effect I was intending. Um, And and that makes the point exactly. Uh, There's a lot of people that would say, you're right, Paul. There is a lot of bad stuff in this world. There's a lot of bad people in this world. But now Paul is turning his attention on exactly the types of people who would have agreed with everything he's written so far. He's writing here not to irreligious pagan heathens. He's writing to moralistic people, to good people, to upstanding citizens, the pillars of their communities. You can see that in the details of the text. If you look in those verses in chapter 1 again, notice how often Paul says, them. Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed against men. They have rejected the truth about God. God gave them over to dishonorable passions. They didn't see fit to acknowledge God. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. They, 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 they. And people are thinking, you're dang right, Paul. They're bad. Go get them. Verse 1, chapter 2, therefore you, you have no excuse. Judo move, turning the tables. So here's what I want you to hear this morning. Here's what you need to know. We live in a city full of moralists. Do you know that? We live in a city full of moralists. When Marianne and I moved here six and a half years ago to plant this church, I would meet random people in the community, and they would ask me what I was doing, and I would say, I'm here to plant a new church. And they would say, man, that sounds great. And they would pat me on the back and then say, That's, you're doing a good work. We need more of that in this town. And I'd say, well, I'm so glad you think that. Is there a place where you go to church? They'd say, no, I don't go to church. But you're doing a great job, Pastor. Now, the prior city we lived in, Tucson, if I had told someone in Tucson, hey, I'm here to plant a new church, they would have looked at me like I had three eyeballs. 
Very strange thing to do. But here it's normal. It's part of the water we drink and the air we breathe. We're two thumbs up to Jesus, conservative, nice, moral people. We live in a city full of moralists. Can I take it even closer to home? Some of you are moralists. Some of you are moralists. Some of you are Christians, and in your sin, when you're not believing the gospel, you fall back into moralism. But some of you, some of you think you're Christians, but you're not. You're just a moralist. And it would be a tragedy for you to never know the difference. That's why Paul wrote these verses. He wants you to consider how your heart your moralistic heart can be, can be exposed. He's, he's saying that the gravity of sin affects the proverbial bad guys, and it also affects the proverbial good guys. That's what these verses show us. Paul's about to expose your heart. It's not very pleasant, but it's necessary. We need the, we need the surgical conviction of the Holy Spirit to come upon us in power so that we will run Run, run to Jesus Christ and to his deep grace, to his abundant mercy. There's mercy for the irreligious heathen, and there's also mercy for the moralist. But first, you have to see what you really are. So, three marks of the moralist in Romans chapter 2. The first mark, Paul tells us, moralists judge people by a standard that they can't keep themselves. Verse 1, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Paul says that those who judge others are also under God's righteous judgment. So what does he mean when he says judging? Well, he doesn't mean, he doesn't mean that people should never make discretionary, discerning decisions even about other people. There's a sense in which judging is a good thing. I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says that the spiritual person judges all things. So that's not what he means. He means probably what you assume when you read that. He means that moralistic people, moralistic people have a tendency towards hypocrisy. Moralistic people are critical of everybody except, guess who? Yours truly. They're critical of everybody except themselves. Moralists, Paul's saying here, work themselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the behavior of other people, and they can't see the same issues that they are so indignant over in their own hearts, in their own life. That's why Paul says, verse 1, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. I don't know about you, but I find it fascinating I find it to be a fascinating aspect of human nature that none of us like judgy people. I mean, do we? It reminds me of that Simpsons character. Uh, Ned Flanders, I believe, is Homer's next-door neighbor who's like the proverbial judgmental Christian that nobody wants to be around. We can't stand judgy people. We can't stand hypocrites. But we all do the same things. There's a book that came out about 10 years ago that's a book written for pastors by one of my seminary professors. His name is Paul Tripp. The book is called Dangerous Calling, and it's about how dangerous it is to be a pastor, to have a platform, to tell people the truth of God, and how easy it is for your own life to become eroded into sinfulness and selfishness. And on the back of that book, as most of books, there's a series of endorsements 
from other pastors saying, this is a great book. All you pastors need to go read it. Five endorsements on the back of this book published 10 years ago. Now, three of those five pastors have lost their ministries, their very public ministries, due to some sort of moral failing. The book's endorsed by a bunch of guys who have since then had public failures and lost their ministries over the very sorts of things they're endorsing. The very things that they're saying, you should read this book so that you don't do this. And, you know, maybe even in hearing that illustration, you might be tempted to judge those pastors while you're doing the same things. We've got to think about this for a minute, okay? Um, I want you to listen. I want you to listen to the Holy Spirit because he's speaking to people here who read verse 1. You practice the very same things. And who in moments of really deep honesty think, actually, I really don't. I don't do these things, Paul. I mean, I don't engage in sexual deviancy. I don't live a ruthless and heartless and faithless life. I don't. I don't murder. Never done that. I don't invent evil. This is where we need to dig in to the person who reads chapter 1 and says, I am not like that. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what Jesus says. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Here's where you need to listen to the Holy Spirit. While the fruit of the tree may be different, the root of the tree is the same. The fruit of the tree may be different, but the root of the tree is the same. You may not act the same, but the root of your action is the same. Moralists do not believe that. Moralists go to prisons or street corners or uh, addiction recovery centers or LGBT parades, and they really don't think they are that bad. Their greed is not as bad as that person's theft. My lust is not as bad as his adultery. My anger is not as bad as her murder. My envy is not as bad as that other person's bribery. But here's the truth. Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Paul's saying that by trying to be really nice and good, you cannot escape God's judgment. You cannot escape God's judgment. This is hard stuff. By not being as bad as some other people in your mind. Francis Schaeffer, a theologian in the 20th century, said of these verses two through, 1 through 3 that it's like a, an invisible tape recorder. <laughs> tape recorders. You kids know what those are. Um, an invisible iP- iPhone app. Let's use that. That's uh, strapped around your neck. That is recording every word that you say. It's also recording every thought that you have, every secret addiction or compulsion, every attitude is being recorded. If you think about it that way, ask yourself, are you really in a place to be passing judgment on others? Are you really in a place to think that you're better off than others? Paul's point is that no one of us, none of us, can even live up to the standard that we impose on other people, much less the law of God. And listen, the moralist is the one who fails to see this in his or her life. Are you a moralist? Are you a moralist? Do you judge others by a standard that you can't live up to yourself? 
You know you're a moralist if you have a really hard time with people who break the rules. There's example one. (laughs) Especially when they get away with it. You say to yourself, I follow the rules. Why don't they have to follow the rules? You get a sense of righteousness out of your rule following. You know you're a moralist if you're unable to receive any criticism about your own life. Your spouse or your child or your parent or a friend, or a counselor, or a pastor, calls you out on an issue that they see, and your inner lawyer, sorry lawyers, but your inner lawyer, immediately perks up and comes to your defense. And you say, well, I may have been snippy with you, I may have been short with you, but you don't know what kind of day I've had. Or, I may have been rude, but it's because of the way you treated me. Do you see that in your life? Is that something that you're prone to? The Spirit is perhaps opening your hearts to this. And he says, listen, lay down your moralism. Lay down your moralism and and come to Jesus. The kindness, verse 4, and the, the patience of God are drawing you. They're drawing you right now. Lay it down. Confess your failures. Confess your secrets. Receive the cleansing of Jesus' grace. There is grace for you. There is mercy for you. You don't have to measure up. You can't measure up. Own who you really are. Admit what you've really done and said and thought. God came to call sinners, not the righteous. This is a place for the sick, not for the righteous. The church is a hospital, not a museum. For the faux moralists. Moralists are those who judge others by a standard that they can't keep themselves. The second mark of moralism, Paul tells us, verses 6 through 11, is that you think God grades on a curve. You think God grades on a curve. That's what Paul's saying in these verses. Notice verse 5, he speaks about judgment. You're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Then verse 6, he gives the grounds on which God will judge everyone. And this might surprise you, people who know your Bibles. Paul says, God will render to each one according to his faith. Is that what he says? It's not what he says. God will render to each one according to his works. People who do good, who seek for glory and honor and immortality, they'll receive eternal life. People who are self-seeking, who don't obey the truth, they'll receive wrath and fury. It doesn't matter, verses 9 and 10, if you're a Jew or a Greek, for God shows no partiality. Now, we've got to deal with that real quick here. Um, I'm sure a lot of you are wondering, has Paul taken leave of his senses here? How can Paul say that God will judge us based on our works? Is Paul saying that people will get into heaven or be rejected from heaven based on what they do or do not do? I thought salvation was by faith. Now, those are really fair questions. So can we do this first? Give Paul some credit for being intelligent. 20 verses ago, He said that the righteousness of God comes to faith for faith. In just a few verses, verse 9 of chapter 3, he's going to say all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Chapter 3, verse 20, he says no human being will be justified by the works of the law. So what's going on in these verses? Remember, Paul's going after the moralist, okay? And the moralist is the one who does not believe that the playing field is even. The moralist does not believe The playing field is is even. The moralist believes that he or she is better than. That he or she is better off than the immoral, irreligious person. 
So Paul is at pains to establish that God does not grade on a curve. God will judge every person on the same basis by works, not by religious heritage, not by national identity, not by what family you were born into. The standard of judgment, Paul says, is the same for everyone. Imagine Paul saying something like this. Imagine you're having coffee with him, and he says, I know that you're proud of your morality. I know you're proud of what you've avoided and the people you've shunned and stayed away from. I know you're proud of your good works and your charity. I just want you to remember the standard that God has. Remember what the entrance exam to heaven or hell is. It's those who by patience seek for glory and honor immortality and who are not self-seeking. Ever. Period. The standard is not, I I think I'm more about God's glory than being self-seeking, you know, 63.8% of the time. The standard is not, I am definitely less self-seeking than my brother-in-law. The standard is, Galatians 3.10, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So if you've always, in every moment of your life, been after God's glory and honor, and you've never been self-seeking, even once, you have nothing to worry about. You have nothing to worry about. Um, You know, this judgment language is (laughs) nerve-wracking. It's nerve-wracking, and really it should be. Why does the Bible do this to us? Why does the Bible talk about judgment and the day of God's wrath and fury? Why, why does Jesus tell stories like the parable of the sheep and the goats where he will say to some people, some people who have done what we would consider to be some really good things, some people who have been really moral, Jesus says to them, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus does this and Paul's doing this and the Bible does this to us because God wants you to realize that one day every single one of you will stand before him. It's true. One day every one of us will stand before the all-powerful king of the universe, the judge of the living and the dead, and we will give an account for everything we have ever done. The videotape recorder, the iPhone app recorder of our lives will be played and even worse news it will be public and there's two possible scenarios there's two possible sentences for everyone because god is impartial and just one is condemnation based on our sin and failure and the other is justification a declaration of righteousness but not based on our works our works cannot measure up No, any justification is only going to be based on the work of Jesus. When you stand before God with eternity on the line, you better have righteousness. You better have righteousness. Paul's asking, is it going to be yours or is it going to be Jesus's? Listen to the Spirit. Lay down your efforts to appease God by your morality. Stop fooling yourself into thinking that you're not that self-seeking. Enough with the lie. Enough with the lie that God is partial to you because of who you are or where you were born or what you have done or the friends you've made. Run to Jesus Christ. Let Jesus cover you with his righteousness. He longs to do just that. 
Take on Jesus' identity. Stand before the throne of God in Jesus. Hear the acquittal and the forgiveness of the judge as, as Jesus pleads the merits of his blood for you. That's what the Spirit's asking you to. He's summoning and beckoning you into just that posture. Final mark of the moralist. The first is you judge people by standard. You don't keep yourself. The second, you think God grades on a curve. Last one, verses 12 through 16. You question the fairness of God's way of justice. Moralists question the fairness of God's way of justice. Um, What Paul's saying in these verses is that God is going to be completely fair. He's going to be completely just in his judgment. And here he's specifically addressing the type of person who hears what he said so far and then makes this objection. This person will object, hey, I'm not a Jew. I didn't have access to the Bible, to the law of God, to the Ten Commandments. Therefore, I have no way of knowing what God does or doesn't want. So it would be unfair of God to judge me by a standard that I didn't even know existed. Imagine that you transfer to a new school and you walk in halfway through the semester, uh, the first day of organic chemistry. You haven't had a lick of organic chemistry. You have no notes. And you walk into class and the professor says, pop quiz. This is going to be 50% of your final grade. And you raise your hand and you say, that's not fair. I haven't been here. And the professor says, too bad. Take the test anyway. That's how we imagine that God is like sometimes. And so we make this objection. And so Paul answers that objection in these verses. He, He says, verse 14, when Gentiles who don't have the law By nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Paul's saying that no no one is going to be judged by a standard that they have not known. That's what he's saying. Paul says that people like Gentiles who do not have the Ten Commandments are, verse 14, a law unto themselves. What that means, what that means is that because God made everyone uh, as self-consciously moral people, everyone shows by their behavior that the law of God is written on their hearts. Now, that's just a simple fact of history. That's why every culture in the history of the world has had pretty much the same basic moral standards. That's what C.S. Lewis is arguing at the very beginning of mere Christianity. He puts it better than anyone. Can I read to you what he says? Listen to Lewis. Everyone has has heard people quarreling. They say things like this. How do you like it if anyone did the same thing to you? Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He's appealing to some standard of behavior which he expects the other person to know about. Quarreling means trying to show that the other man is in the wrong. And there would be no sense in trying to do that unless you and he had some sort of agreement as to what right and wrong are. Just as there would be no sense in saying that a footballer had committed a foul unless there was some agreement about the rules of football. The point is that the moralistic person loves to argue that it is not fair for God to hold them to a standard they didn't even know about. And God replies, I will judge you by your own standard then. No one will be judged or condemned for a standard they have not known. Of course, the point is we don't even live up to our own standards of morality. 
And that's what will condemn us if we attempt to stand before God based on our morality. So we have no right to question the fairness of God's justice. God's going to be perfectly fair in his righteous judgment at the end of all things. Judgment's a hard thing to consider. I had coffee a number of years ago with a college student who was really struggling with that issue. They, they would say, it's just not fair that God is going to judge me. And um, this person professed to be a Christian. They knew their Bibles. And, and I remember just being given by the Spirit this to say, I, I said, who's wiser? Who's wiser, you or God? Person, well, God. Who's more loving? You or God? Well, God's probably more loving. Who's more powerful? You or God? God's probably more powerful. What that means is that you're just going to have to trust a wiser, more loving, more powerful God to administer justice in a way that is fair and right. We're going to have to trust a God who is holier than we are and stronger than we are to have the place of judging everyone fairly. So, so let that sink in for a moment. There's, there's no way out by pleading ignorance. That's Paul's point. The, the harsh reality is that we don't even live up to our own standards and that God can rightly condemn us based on that. What it all boils down to is that our moralism is no protection from God's just judgment against us. Listen, your moralism is no protection from God's just judgment against you. You need something better. You need a safer, stronger refuge. You need a person who has real righteousness. You need Jesus. Again, that's why God gives us bad news. It's his kindness. Verse 4. It's the kindness of God that will draw you to Jesus. It's the kind mercy of God in exposing you to your true self so that you will run to Jesus. These verses are meant to tell you, listen, these verses are meant to tell you that if you don't feel like a completely hopeless wreck, you do not understand the gospel. Listen, if you don't feel that God can rightly at any moment cast me away from him, you are denying the gospel. If you for a moment cease feeling, <laughs> if you for a moment cease feeling like I could never measure up and attempting to is a perilous rat race that has destroyed millions and will destroy me. If you stop feeling that way, you have denied the gospel. The gospel is you cannot measure up. The gospel is you are never going to be good enough. The gospel is if you don't feel hopeless, you don't really see the gravity of sin. The gospel is because all those things are true, go to Jesus. Because all these things are true, receive the righteousness of God given to you by free for him. Because all those things are true, listen to the message of Christianity. Whether you're irreligious or moral or religious, none of us measure up. That's why we need God giving us Jesus as a gift. Only then, only then can we have no fear of God's judgment when we run to Jesus. What's the difference between the Christian and the moralist? It's that the Christian knows that God is not interested primarily in creating nicer people. God is interesting in creating new people through Christ. Are you a nice person or a new person? To become new, you come to Christ in faith, resting on his righteousness alone and abandoning your badness along with your pretended goodness for the sake of him. Let's pray.